welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hi, Amber. How are you? Doing well. And we are also joined by Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. So it's an all-host show today. We have a lot of news to power through, so we're just going to do it with the three of us. Heck yeah. Big week. Big week in the in the old news cycle. Yeah, I think we have a lot of things that are like uh, well-known people, big issues that are going on uh, across the nation. So we want to get right into it. And Haley, I think you have our first story today. I do. So Facebook and its outside counsel at Gibson Dunn are in a bit of trouble for how they handled discovery in multi-district litigation over the Cambridge Analytica data harvesting scandal. This all went down recently at a hearing that was pretty entertaining, but a California federal judge really tore into them for what the judge said was abominable deposition misconduct and a pattern of pouncing on alleged ambiguities in order to delay discovery into materials that were just like blatantly relevant to the litigation, but Facebook didn't want to hand it over. Yeah. Um, the words abominable and pouncing are direct quotes there from the judge. Indeed. Don't hear <laughs> that kind of language that often in court. So it is a little startling. Let's backtrack just a drop because Cambridge Analytica is a scandal with Facebook happened, you know, some time ago. And in the news cycle, it feels like it was a million years. So oh, yeah, a thousand news years have passed <laughs> yeah, that's since right. then. So this litigation centers on Facebook's role in that whole debacle. As you may recall, in 2018, we learned that a third-party app developer took personal data from about 87 million Facebook users and then sold that to Cambridge Analytica, which is uh, a UK-based political consulting firm that was working with the Trump campaign. Facebook users actually told the court last month that they just reached a settlement in principle with Facebook's parent company. Um, The terms of that deal haven't been disclosed yet. But it does seem like, you know, finally, there might be a resolution on the horizon here. And yeah, I mean, this was like a long gestating thing, but it seems like the lawyers are still arguing over sanctions, like exactly what is going on. Right. Yeah. So as it's winding down, I feel like this sanctions battle is really heating up at the same time. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's funny. It It was like, okay, the merits are out of the way. What did the lawyers mess up? Right. Yeah. So. What's going on here? The judge is U.S. District Judge Vince Chabria in the Northern District of California. And there are a few categories of alleged uh, discovery misconduct. But the big issue is supposedly that Facebook spent years and years refusing to turn over this user data as well as internal communications from, from the company. And Judge Chabria said it seemed like at every turn, Facebook was cooking up new reasons and excuses not to produce that, even though it was very clearly relevant. He said that, so there was another judge that was actually presiding over these discovery disputes. And that judge was very clearly frustrated. And there are a lot of remarks on the record that are like, you've got to be kidding me at this this judge saying that at these hearings. So Judge Trabria noted that was like, my colleague clearly is not pleased with you. Um, and then <laughs> On top of that, he said that he watched two of uh, the depositions that Facebook did with some witnesses. And in one of them, he said the Gibson Dunn lawyer's conduct, as well as the conduct of the witness, was abominable. That's where that word came in. 
Um, he said the witness was just straight up refusing to answer basic questions and the Gibson Dunn attorney was allowing it and encouraging it. Okay. Uh, what do the attorneys have to say about that? I mean, I would presume they don't characterize their behavior as abominable. Yeah, they do not. Yeah. They are not snowmen. <laughs> I know. That's all I picture as well. Well, yeah. Uh, it's hard <laughs> it not a, to. It has a specific connotation, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there was one unlucky Gibson Dunn attorney at this hearing who who really had to, you know, take the bulk of this. Her name is Rosemary Ring. And she told the court she only recently joined the case. So, you know, she's catching up herself on what all has been going down over the years. But she said that the other judges' rulings were ambiguous and that, you know, when Facebook and Gibson Dunn were arguing about what they should be handing over, like those were very genuine arguments. They weren't trying to delay things they genuinely didn't understand or what needed to be turned over. And she said the record could have been more clear on all of that. She also, uh, as you would expect, she said she's never been accused of misconduct in all of her, you know, 20 years as a lawyer. She doesn't think any of this conduct is sanctionable. And she even was like, this is a lot of finger pointing. She called it finger pointing. And she told the judge that this whole thing is a, quote, miserable experience. So she has her own, you know, colorful take on that. But Judge Chabria really was not having it. He said that Ring's comment is illustrative of the problem. Here's his quote. Any little ambiguity in something that the judge says or the special master says Facebook and Gibson Dunn would pounce on that and use it to obstruct and delay production of obviously responsive materials. He also said that Ring's argument here is ridiculous. It's becoming more ridiculous over time. A very entertaining part of the hearing, he he apparently had to stop it at one point to ask another Gibson Dunn attorney who was sitting in the gallery to stop shaking her head and making facial expressions. Uh, he was like, this is so distracting. <laughs> Actually, I, I have another quote here. The person in the front row who is constantly shaking their head and making facial expressions. It's very distracting. I'm having a hard time listening to what Ms. Ring is arguing. The judge seems so peeved here. Definitely contentious. So did Gibson Dunn actually get sanctioned here or is that still open? It's still open. It seems like that's what's going to end up happening. But because of where we're at in the litigation, the judge was like, all right, I'm going to need you guys to to give me some some briefing on how this is going to affect the proposed settlement that's being hammered out, specifically the class counsel's um, attorney fee request. So he's asked for for some filings on that. He also asked for them to propose what legal process should be used if he decides that the sanctions should be punitive. So once that all gets hammered out, we'll get that order, um, but it's not there yet. But, you know, based on the judge's comments at the hearing, I, I'm thinking it's going to be a it's going to be a spicy order. OK, so we'll be watching for that order. And now I want to pivot us to our second news story of the day. A few weeks ago on the show, we got pretty detailed in discussing exactly what was going on with the legal case related to classified documents that President Trump had taken to Mar-a-Lago. This week, I want to again turn to a lawsuit involving the former president, but this one is about something different. It's about his business dealings. This week, New York Attorney General Letitia James filed a civil suit against Trump, several of his children, and also some company executives, seeking the return of $250 million. 
And that's for allegedly ill-gotten gains from a 10-year scheme to defraud banks using misleading financial statements. Yeah, there's been a lot of sort of like bubbling up of, if not the investigation of Trump himself, which we've talked about on the show before, then the investigation of the Trump organization or his business interests and things like that. What exactly are the allegations that we need to know about here? Yeah, I want to be clear right up top. This is a complaint. So these are, like you said, Alex, only allegations that we're talking about. But I do want to go through what the New York Attorney General says in that suit. Allegedly, the Trump Organization illegally misrepresented the values of certain assets, and that was to either reduce taxes or to obtain favorable terms on loans between 2011 and 2021. Trump himself is named in the suit, along with Don Jr., Eric, Ivanka, and several top executives at the Trump Organization. The AG explained that the investigation found that the Trump Organization used fraudulent and misleading asset valuation over 200 times in 10 years on annual financial statements. Those financial statements are important because they were then used to obtain hundreds of millions of dollars in loans and insurance coverage. The suit is looking to do some really specific things here. Um, First, permanently ban them from doing business in New York by forbidding them to serve as corporate officers, stripping the organization itself, the Trump Organization, of its ability to obtain loans or make real estate acquisition for five years, And James is also asking for an independent monitor to enforce reforms at the company. Okay, that is a lot there. So I I think I understand the the allegations, but what laws does the AG say this is all in violation of? I wanted to run these down because there's quite a few mentioned. State laws related to falsifying business records, issuing false financial statements, insurance fraud, and also engaging in a conspiracy to commit those crimes. This, again, is a civil suit, but the state AG did share evidence with the Manhattan District Attorney who has an open criminal investigation. James has also come out and said that the Trump defendants violated federal laws by making false statements to financial institutions and committing bank fraud, allegedly. The attorney general said she's referred her findings to the Internal Revenue Service and to prosecutors for the Southern District of New York. So again, referring things to possible criminal enforcement folks. Understanding that we are at a very preliminary stage of this proceeding, what are these false statements that Trump and the various Trump defendants are alleged to have made? This is all in dispute, of course. But according to the court filing, the volume of misleading statements was, and I quote, staggering. And to further quote from the complaint, it affected most, if not all, of the real estate holdings in any given year. So pretty broad. I want to run down a few examples just so you can get a flavor of what we're talking about. This is not exhaustive. There's a lot in this complaint. So it it basically paints this portrait the complaint does of upping valuations to get better loan terms and then lowering valuations to minimize tax liability. So it's sort of playing two sides of that. One example is an estate called Seven Springs. It's in Westchester County, New York. It was valued at $30 million in 2006, but its worth was later pegged anywhere between $261 million to $291 million. It's quite a jump. In a 10-year period. Yeah, so between 2011 and 2021, that's quite a jump. Later on, the valuation was again dropped back down to 56.5 million. And 
that was in part allegedly to decrease Trump's tax liability. Allegedly, Trump also lied about the size of his own Manhattan apartment in Trump Tower to increase its value, claiming it was 30,000 square feet instead of its actual size, which is 11,000 square feet. So based on that inflated square footage, the value of the apartment in 2015 and 2016 was $327 million. (laughs) Wow. I say that with some emphasis because, and this is a quote from the complaint, to this date, no apartment in New York City has ever sold for close (laughs) to that amount. Tripling the size of the apartment for purposes of the valuation was intentional and deliberate fraud, not an honest mistake. Oh, man, I love I love just like picturing again, you know, these are all allegations, um, but I just love the notion of like lying about your own apartment size. Like I I think I'm going to start telling people that I, too, have a 30,000 square foot <laughs> yeah, Los Angeles a, apartment. Not a small discrepancy, too. I think what I'm doing with illustrating these numbers is the allegations. I mean, we'll see how this all pans out, but just the allegations themselves are of big disparities, not some small accounting error or, you know, little along the margins type things. So in addition, um, allegedly the president and his children fraudulently inflated the value of 12 rent stabilized apartments that had initially appraised for $750,000 and the valuations got all the way up to $49 million on those properties. Mar-a-Lago was also allegedly improperly valued That property has some really specific things about um, development restrictions that impact how much it's worth. According to the lawsuit, Mar-a-Lago should have been only valued at about $75 million, but Trump said his club was worth as much as $739 million. I mean, Trump's got a lot of legal headaches these days, as we've meticulously detailed on Pro Se. But in terms of this specifically, I mean, like as we've laid out, it's not nothing. These are Pretty serious allegations. Um, how has the former president and the organization responded to this? As we've talked about many times, it's, it's very polarizing to talk about Donald Trump's legal entanglements, both with the general public. Everyone has really strong opinions about this. But also from the president himself, he's called the suit a witch hunt. Um, he's repeatedly spoken out against it as it's progressed through the court. Um even before it made it to this complaint stage as it's progressed through some other challenges around gathering information as part of the probe. So in a statement Wednesday, a Trump organization spokesperson said the suit, quote, represents the culmination of nearly three years of persistent, targeted, unethical political harassment by James and her office. There's been extensive litigation between the parties over a subpoena issued by the attorney general seeking to force Trump and his children to testify while they were doing this investigation. That culminated in the former president declining to answer questions under oath, according to James's office, 440 times and invoking his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination repeatedly. Trump has challenged the probe, as I said, um, on the basis, uh, essentially, of what he says, that it's a witch hunt, calling it, you know, overreaching and harassing, sort of expanding on that view of what's gone on here. He's challenged it in state court and federal court. It, there's been a lot of back and forth. And there's really no indication here that the legal drama is going to slow down anytime soon. This is yet another example of something we're going to have to continue to watch because I think it is going to be impactful no matter how it, it turns out.
All right. I want to talk now about the very prolonged crisis that I think most of our listeners have probably read about by now, which is basically denying Jackson, Mississippi of clean drinking water. It sort of spilled into federal court last week as several of that city's residents brought a proposed class action accusing local officials and several water treatment contractors of basically negligence um, that led to the degrading of their local water supply. The Jackson water crisis has like sort of been percolating for a few months, but the allegations in this lawsuit that was filed last week kind of color up a dispute that goes back well over a decade. And it's got a lot of sort of like socioeconomic layers, lots of different public oversight components to it. And I thought it would be a good idea to just kind of like get us introduced here. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of moving parts here, a lot going on. But what I guess before we break all of that down, what what's actually outlined in this suit? Yeah, so the thing to know is that four residents of Jackson, Mississippi have accused the city of violating the Safe Drinking Water Act and various federal statutes that place limits on the levels of lead and copper that can be in municipal water pipes for several years. And in the course of these filings, they have alluded to assessments by the Environmental Protection Agency that the city's water was at risk for serious contaminants as recently as 2020. The thing that kind of spurred this into court was that back on August 29th of this year, there was flooding in Mississippi that knocked the OB Curtis water plant offline. So there's there's this water plant, there was a flood that knocked this plant offline and it basically cut the running water off for the state capitals, approximately 150,000 residents and also about 30,000 people in the surrounding area. That incident led state and federal officials to declare an emergency, and they began dispersing bottled water to residents of the city. So the lawsuit alleges that this plant, the Curtis plant, was, while this was like an unexpected event, this flood, the lawsuit alleges that this plant fell into disrepair and also accuses the engineering company Simons of basically bungling its contract with the city by installing sort of faulty water meters that overstated the quality of the water that was in and the integrity of the flowing of the water to the city's various residents. So this kind of massive system failure doesn't usually happen with just one really bad August, you know, summer flood. How far back do all of these woes really go? Well, I think it's very instructive to just look at, as I said, this is a proposed class action and the plaintiffs, the Jackson residents, are hoping to establish a class of anyone who has been exposed to the city's water system since the year 2009. So we're going back quite a long way in terms of like 
the various structural inequities that have led to this problem in Jackson, Mississippi. And it's just this very multi-layered allegation against public and private bureaucracy that kind of left Jackson's water supply in like the negative space of where public oversight should be. So the suit said that there was sort of government testing in 2015 that found that 13 out of 58 homes sampled in Jackson had unsafe levels of lead in the water and that city officials were slow to respond and that, quote, imminent and substantial dangers were posed to residents who relied on that water. So this is sort of like a problem in plain sight sort of allegation thing where various bodies that are supposed to be vigilantly watching whether your water is drinkable were telling you this stuff and you didn't pay attention. But I do want to say that while like a lot of the headlines about this lawsuit and we're talking about it here is focused on Jackson municipal officials, there is also a big focus on private companies that were contracted to address the city's water problems. Uh, One of those companies is Trilogy Engineering Services, and the suit accuses that company, Trilogy, of making making this problem worse, basically, because it was contracted to clean up the city's water supply in 2016 and didn't really pay attention to the various underlying metrics that were underlying the degradation. It also accuses Simons, which I mentioned before, of manipulating city officials to secure this contract to clean up the water supply without going through a bidding process. So saying this just like no other company could even bid on it. And you just let Simons come in here and talk about it. So there's lots of sort of interesting components here. Yeah. Has there been anything else around this? Because I know, you know, I'm thinking back to all the other places across America that have had big water problems. It usually leads to quite a few lawsuits, a lot going on. Um, Is there anything else we should know about this one? Yeah, there was a similar suit filed here in October about the Jackson water crisis. And that's further along in litigation. And that basically accuses city officials of switching from well water to surface water um, as kind of like this quick fix that actually ended up worsening the lead problem, which kind of threads through this new class action that we're, that I'm talking about today. And, you know, I think the closest cultural sort of antecedent is the Flint water crisis, obviously. Yeah, definitely. And that, yeah, and that there was a settlement only just late last year And then there was a new case that was only brought to trial earlier this year. And so, like, this stuff can tend to grind through the legal system very slowly. But it's a hugely important story. I didn't want to gloss past this, but more than 80% of Jackson's population is black. Um, This becomes a very sort of, you know, charged issue in that, through that lens. About a quarter of the city's citizens live in abject poverty. So anytime a group of citizens is looking to launch a collective class action, looking to hold officials account to provide basic services, right? Like, like clean drinking water, 
we will have an ear to that and we'll obviously keep you guys updated as to any updates in the case. our show is something offbeat and I would invite you my co-hosts to think back to the year 2014. Oh my. Were you listening to podcasts? <laughs> this wow. predates the advent of pro se. So I know we were the one that really I like how you position pro se as the like, <laughs> were you ever listening to a podcast? <laughs> Look, I mean, for our listeners out there, they're probably like before pro se, what were podcasts? I was in the wilderness. Yeah. <laughs> But okay, so if you were like me, you were listening to podcasts, but really because you'd gotten hooked on cereal. That, for anybody who has forgotten, even though how could you, it was a juggernaut. Cereal was that investigative true crime podcast that in its first season told a really compelling story about the murder of Heyman Lee and the conviction of her ex-boyfriend Adnan Syed for the crime. We have an update on that from this week. A Maryland state judge vacated the murder conviction and ordered Adnan Syed's immediate release. He had been in prison for 23 years. Look, I remember getting off the train at Union Square in 2014 and being like, what if you did a podcast about legal cases? <laughs> what then, if you did? Three years later, uh, here we are. But no, I mean, I'm being glib here that this is like a huge cultural thing. And kind of, I mean, it existed before, so I wouldn't say it invented the true crime kind of boom, but it definitely accentuated it, yes. I would say. Oh, yeah. Um, it it and poured then, some gasoline on the fire, for yeah, sure. Yeah, that's probably the way to say it. And, you know, this is in the early days of, like, narrative podcasting where it took on a different life of, like, whether you thought this guy was guilty or whether you thought he should be guilty under the standards of U.S. criminal law beyond, you know, a reasonable doubt and things like that. Anyway, it was a hugely popular podcast. Um, and I know that subsequent litigation sort of took place even in the wake of the podcast, Amber. So what did that all look like? Yeah, this one's pretty interesting to get into. And actually, Haley, you wrote about this for Law 360. So I'm expecting you to jump in and correct me when I mess anything up here. But between the two of us, I think we can kind of run down the legal mechanics of what happened. And they are a little surprising, I would say. It was actually the state that requested to vacate the conviction because of revelations that former prosecutors withheld evidence from the defense. That is pretty notable because Adnan Syed's counsel had been pushing for review of his conviction repeatedly through many different avenues. At one point, they even tried to get it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court to review whether defense counsel's shortcomings had, you know, risen to the level that it should be reviewed. Uh, but the high court decided to not take up that case. So everybody sort of thought this wouldn't happen. And then we have this abrupt turnaround where the state themselves are like, um, excuse me, can we vacate this one? Yeah. And they're like, oops, that was our bad. Which yeah, also exactly. The Baltimore state's attorney, I think is how they, they say it. It's a, yeah. a uniquely titled position in that area. But um, she is also, while this was all happening, the same day she asked the court to vacate this conviction, she also 
pled not guilty to criminal charges of, I think, fraud. Like there, so she's dealing with her own. Baltimore's can of worms. guys. If we've learned <laughs> nothing over the years, uh, it's that in legal context, Baltimore can be a real challenge. And I actually am going to circle back to that as sort of a little tie up here with some other pro se stories. But let me take us back to sort of yeah, in a let's nutshell, get like a reset happened. of the thing. Amber, sure. please tell us the story of cereal in like six. <laughs> let me graphs. do it extremely <laughs> poorly in comparison to that excellent podcast. Yeah. Um, okay. So here's what you need to know. Literally just about the current thing that happened. When Adnan was a teenager, he was convicted of killing his ex-girlfriend. Serial recounts in extreme detail all of the ways the case is allegedly flimsy, relies on some pretty questionable evidence. Baltimore State's attorney, Marilyn Mosby, that's who you were talking about, Haley, she filed the motion that got him released this week, telling the court that an ongoing investigation revealed two potential alternate suspects who had motive in the killing, and the evidence of these alternate suspects was illegally hidden from the defense. <laughs> um, so pretty stark here. So bad. Yeah. Mosby said this. This hidden evidence established that other people had threatened Hay's life, had hidden her car in places known to them. Under the law, prosecutors should have disclosed this evidence to Adnan so that he could defend himself, but they did not. This is a pretty important thing. Prosecutors are required to turn over all evidence that could be favorable to the defense. Not doing so is called a Brady violation. I think a lot of people have heard of that. That's what's being alleged here. This is a big deal because prosecutors are the ones who have the bulk of the evidence. They work directly with the police it's a fundamental tenet of our justice system that they have to turn it over so that a person can put on a robust defense. If they were allowed to just pick and choose what to share, our criminal justice system would basically fall apart and become incredibly unfair. So the new investigation also revealed a few other things. I mean, that's the top line one, those Brady violations. Yep. But the new investigation also revealed that there's a lot of unreliability around cell phone data records. Um, they were used heavily at trial to... Uh, try to corroborate Adnan Syed's whereabouts throughout the day of the murder. Serial really breaks down why those were problematic. So if you're interested, maybe go back to that podcast of old to hear all about it. But that was specifically brought up in this motion to the court as well. It's so crazy that, as you say, Amber, this wasn't, I mean, obviously, uh, Syed's lawyers have been forcefully arguing that he didn't get a fair shake the first time around when he was convicted as a 17-year-old. But then the fact that the state is now the one who is sort of asking to revisit this conviction. And it's so strange because I remember when this, when attention first came to this case, when the podcast dropped, there were like Reddit threads and various forums that were like, here are all the holes in the case. And now it's not even just like some crackpot thing anymore. It's the state itself saying like, hey, here are a few things that we think might not be so above board, which is fascinating. Um, yeah, again, it's very eight years unusual. later. No, it's we're, we're over 20 years removed from this uh, heinous crime and eight years removed from the from the resurfacing of it in this podcast. But let's get situated here. I mean, what? I mean, I know this doesn't mean that he's innocent, but he is now walking free. 
for the first time in his adult life for all intents and purposes, right? Yeah, I want to be really clear on that. This is not an exoneration. Yeah. it All it means is that the errors and the illegality in the process of his trial was significant enough to get him out of prison while the investigation continues, and it is reopened at this point. The court gave the state 30 days to either drop the existing charges against Syed or schedule a retrial. If I were a betting woman, I would say that he's going to be out for good. I mean, that's just me speculating. That's not, you know, that's not known to us at this point, but I would bet that he's going to be able to stay out. Yeah, I I think so, too. But man, Baltimore, Baltimore, Baltimore. Oh, Haley, that that (laughs) phrase is exactly where I wanted to go next. Um, Baltimore's had a lot of trouble around convictions and corruption and misconduct. I did just sort of want to bring us full circle to kind of explain a little bit more about how this all happened and to tie a little bow with something else we talked about in Pro Se. So Baltimore's state's attorney's office has a new sentencing review unit. It was established to reconsider sentences of incarcerated criminals that could be considered too extreme. They're looking at convictions for inmates who are now over 60, so a more elderly population. Those sentenced to crimes committed as juveniles, and a few other things. Syed's lawyer appealed to the Sentencing Review Commission on the basis that he was 17 when he allegedly committed this crime, and that kicked the ball rolling, not only on just a review of his sentence, but a review of the whole case, which is how we got to what we're talking about today. Prosecutors were able to undergo a thorough review and sort of reopen that whole case because of a different criminal justice reform that we've discussed a little bit on Pro Se happening out of Baltimore. If you recall, we did an episode about HBO's miniseries, We Own This City. Um, I do really recall, f- Amber. What? It was a great episode. I'm glad you yes. remember it because I had a lot of fun recording that one. We talked to the prosecutor <laughs> in that big case and also um, the actor counterpart that played him in the miniseries. It was a fun talk. But We on the City chronicles the corruption in the Baltimore Police Department's gun task force. Those dirty cops did a lot of bad things, but among them was often falsifying evidence and lying on the witness stand. So after those dirty cops were investigated themselves and in many instances convicted, a statute was passed allowing criminal convictions secured due to their testimony to be vacated after it was reviewed and vetted. About 153 convictions were thrown into question because of the corrupt action of those cops. So while Adnan's conviction has nothing to do with the gun task force, here's where it ties together. The statute also allowed reexamination of other criminal trials where, quote, new evidence has called into question the integrity of the conviction. So it's that little bit of that broader statute designed to deal with the problems of the gun task force that allowed the sentencing unit to take another look at Syed's case. When the case goes on for so long um, and various sort of updates to statutes can conform to your case, as can, of course, a very popular podcast that sheds light on your plight. A pretty interesting collision here. Yeah, It is. I think my big takeaway, Alex, is going to be how... You could look at this cynically, that Baltimore's got a lot of problems with their criminal justice system. But if you want to take a slightly more positive view, it's that the problems are coming to light and they're actually doing reforms. I mean, they have this new sentencing commission. They have this law that allowed for the review and the request to vacate in some of these convictions that had problems. So 
I'm choosing to be slightly optimistic and say that this is a good sign of what can happen to a troubled city and a troubled system if they take a hard look and try to make some reforms. And maybe it could be a lesson for other places that are facing similar challenges. All right. A very fascinating development on a high-profile story. I'm sure we'll keep an eye on it. Um, I think that's a good enough place to uh, wrap up the show for this week, wouldn't you say? I totally agree. Really appreciate, as always, my two great co-hosts being with me today. Thank you, Amber. Awesome. Okay, well, let's thank everyone else that helped us with today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Contributing reporters this week, Dorothy Atkins, Nate Beck, Teresa Schleep, and Frank Runyon. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like our show, it helps other people find us if you are willing to give us five stars and leave a written review of what you like about it. Please do that. It really would help us out. And if you want to read more about any of the many things we've touched on today, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you next week.